Um, so we'll read 1 Corinthians chapter 12. It says, Now concerning spiritual gifts, brothers, I do not want you to be uninformed. You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols, however you were led. Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. Now there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit, and there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. There are varieties of activities, but it's the same God who empowers them all and everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. For to one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom, and to another the utterance of knowledge, and according to the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit. To another gifts of healing by the one Spirit. To another the working of miracles. To another prophecy. To another the ability to distinguish between spirits. To another various kinds of tongues. To another the interpretations of tongues. All these are empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the, fa- to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greatest honor, and our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. And God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, helping, administrating, and various kinds of tongues. Are all apostles? Are all prophets? Are all teachers? Do all work miracles? Do all possess gifts of healing? Do all speak with tongues? Do all interpret? But earnestly desire the higher gifts. Well, there's an episode of the television show The Office uh, where Michael Scott, the manager of Dunder Mifflin, Mifflin uh, Paper Company, is having money problems, and so he decides he's going to take a second job. And so he goes to this uh, second job, and the office there is ran very differently than his office. Uh, he's working at this weight loss company called, uh, that sells this product called Lipofedrin. And in that environment, all they care about is making the most sales. And so it's like a call center where they just uh, make uh, cold calls to people. And he has a trouble adjusting from being the manager to just being an employee. And he has trouble realizing that he has to just kind of do what he's told. He can't really call the shops. And so he goes there and he just kind of does whatever he feels like. You know, he's used to kind of going around entertaining people in the office. And he does the same thing at this environment. But at this, in this environment, uh, it's a very uh, high-pressure job. Time is valuable. Time is important. And so he's distracting people from their job. And he just kind of goes around doing what he feels is right. Uh, when people, when he would make calls, there was like a set 
uh, thing that he was supposed to read, and it was kind of a proven sales technique, but he would just kind of do his own thing and start talking to people and, and going on trying to make the sale. And his boss has to have a conversation with him, and basically he's trying to communicate to him, okay, so you might be the boss at Dunder Mifflin, but when you come here, you're not the boss. When you come here, there's a different kind of hierarchy, and you have to act in a different way when you're an employee versus when you're a boss, and he has trouble with that. Whether we realize it or not, when any kind of group of people get together, uh, there's almost always some kind of hierarchy. Sometimes it can be really obvious and really uh, blatant. Sometimes it can be kind of hidden and implicit. Uh, so it can happen kind of an, on a societal level. Kind of a very clear example of a hierarchy is, is the caste system in India that has historically you know, had this uh, heritage in their, their country where you have at the top of the caste kind of like the, the Brahmas, the priests, the, the upper uh, echelon type people. Then you have at the lower end, you have Dalits, which are considered to be like untouchable people. And so you have a very distinct hierarchy. The Brahmas are on top, the Dalits are on the bottom. Uh, in our culture, it's a little bit different. It's a little bit more implicit. Uh, we might disagree kind of who's on top or how you, you, know, you rank that hierarchy, but there's a hierarchy in our culture. You know, maybe you have on top, maybe you have like you know, national government officials that have a lot of power and authority that can affect a lot of things that can affect our life, can bring us into war, can change uh, how we live our life in a, dramat a dramatic way. Um, and then you have like people who have a lot of influence, a lot of authority, a lot of money. You know, people like Jeff Bezos or uh, Warren Buffett or Bill Gates, they, they can do a lot. They can fly uh, missions to space. They can do these humanitarian things. They can do a lot of things that average people couldn't do. And then below them you have like athletes and movie stars, um, musicians who are kind of cultural icons. And then maybe below them you have like you know, state, local government officials, and then maybe below them you have like, you know, local community leaders or business leaders. And then below them you have, you know, just your common, average, ordinary people like, like we are. There's a hierarchy in our society. There's a hierarchy when you think about just about any social environment. There's a hierarchy in the military. If you join the military, you know, they want you to see where you rank in the military. And if you're just joining the military, you're probably on the bottom. And they want you to realize you're not, the ones that you're not the one that makes the decisions. You're not a general. You're not a colonel. You have to do what you're told. And so there's a clear hierarchy and chain of command. There's a hierarchy in our workplaces. You know, maybe we have a supervisor that's over us. And maybe that supervisor has a supi supervisor that's over him or her. You know, and then maybe over that supervisor, there's an owner that calls the shots. And so there's a hierarchy in our workplace. There's hierarchies in families, oftentimes whether it's immediate family or an extended family, there's usually one or a, a couple people who kind of the other family members look to kind of for leadership that are the ones that kind of call the shots, you know, they kind of make the decisions for the family. There's a hierarchy in just about any social structure. So in this passage, last week we looked at 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and Paul talks about divisions in the body of Christ, and he talks about uh, the Lord's Supper and how this division came about where the rich and the poor were separating, and the rich kind of had their own meal and were just kind of enjoying themselves and eating as much as they want and drinking as much as they want, and the poor were separated and they were going hungry. 
And uh, Paul talked about how the Lord's Supper is something that kind of brings us together. That in Christ there's neither slave nor free, male nor female, Jew nor Greek. That we're all together. We're all one in Christ. There's unity. There's equality in Christ. And we're supposed to unite together around the Lord's table. So that's all well and good. But then there's another question that comes up. And the other question that comes up is like, so you enter into the body of Christ, and they had this background, this, the hierarchical background that's maybe even stronger than we have, and it's like they would come to the church, the body of Christ, and it's like people have different jobs, different roles in the body of Christ. So you had elders in that day who were kind of overseeing the spiritual matters of the church. You had Paul that was giving an authoritative word from God, speaking on God's behalf, writing scripture. You had people who were you know, doing miracles, people who had extraordinary faith. And so you look at that situation, and the question that would come to mind is, okay, so if we're different, how can we also be equal? If we're different, if we're diverse, how can we still be unified and still be equal at the same time? And that's a question that probably crossed through their minds. It's a question that I think as a culture we've been trying to answer for decades, and often we've done a very poor job at answering that question. Because oftentimes our culture answers it in one of two ways. The number one way that our culture answers that question is this mindset is that if we're going to be unified, we have to be uniform. If we're going to be unified, it means that we have to all be alike. You know, socialists talk about leveling the play, playing field. It's kind of a way of removing diversity. If we're all the same, if we're all on the same level, if we all do the same things, if we remove the diversity, then we'll be unified and equal. Uh, other people answer it like this mindset that, you know, if we're going to be unified, you need to think the way that I do. If you would just think the way that I do, then we'd never, we wouldn't have any problems. We'd be unified, we'd be equal. Like I said, we do a terrible job of answering this question today. But in this passage, I think Paul gives us some really clear guidelines and explains to us how we can both be diverse, but also be equal and also be unified in the body of Christ. And he does so by talking specifically about spiritual gifts. So we're going to look at a few things Paul says about spiritual gifts, and then at the end we're going to kind of circle back to this question of how we can be united and equal, but diverse at the same time. So there's a few things Paul tells us in this passage. The first thing he tells us is that man's hierarchy is not the same thing as God's hierarchy. Paul begins the passage by saying this, you know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols, however you were led. He says when you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols. And what he's indicating here is just because you're led doesn't mean you're led by the Spirit of God. Just because you're engaging in spiritual activity doesn't mean you're honoring to God. So putting on a display of spirituality doesn't mean that you're on a higher level than somebody else. And so he indicates that man's hierarchy is not the same thing as God's hierarchy. And he indicates that again, like we looked at last week, and you know, man thinks about the rich and the poor, and they were separating themselves, that the rich are prominent and had more authority than the poor. They're separating by those uh, distinguishing marks. But Paul says man's hierarchy is not the same thing as God's hierarchy. And he gives criterion for what it looks like to be kind of great in God's eyes 
to have the marks of the Spirit of God. And he says the, the person that's walking in the Spirit of God will never say Jesus is accursed. The person walking in the Spirit of God is never going to say that Jesus be accursed. The person who's walking uh, in the, the person who says Jesus is Lord can't say that except by uh, the Spirit of God. In other words, the person who is giving honor and glory to God, that's the person that has the distinguishing marks of the Spirit. Those are the people who are kind of would be on the top of the hierarchy in God's standards. And so Paul says man's hierarchy is not the same as God's hierarchy. Just because it seems like one person is important in the body of Christ doesn't necessarily mean they're important in God's eyes. Second thing he says is that spiritual gifts, and when we're talking about spiritual gifts, it's kind of a mark of diversity that we all have different gifts. Uh, they're, they're not earned, they're given. Paul tells us, to each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. Everyone who's a believer in Christ, if you're a believer, you have at least one spiritual gift, perhaps even more than one spiritual gift, to serve the body of Christ. It's a gift. Something that God has given you. It's not something that we've earned. It's something God has given us. Now, some of us, maybe we think to ourselves, I, I don't know what my gifts are. Or uh, maybe some of us feel like we don't have anything to offer. But we all have something to offer. We all have been given gifts. And I think sometimes our gifts kind of become so ingrained in who we are that we don't recognize them anymore. Like I, my parents uh, own a a business where they take care of dogs and cats when people go on vacation and groom the dogs and, and take care of them. Um, and so I grew up in that business and I would help them from a pretty early age. I would help walking dogs, help brushing the dogs, washing them, feeding them, uh, taking care of them. And to me, growing up, it seemed like it was pretty simple, pretty easy for me to do. And then I would see them hire other employees that maybe didn't have that background, didn't grow up in that environment. And I would see that, you know, sometimes they would struggle, you know, controlling the animals. Wouldn't be able to get them to go outside or wouldn't be able to get them to come back in. Or, they, you know, maybe they would wash the dog and leave soap, you know, in the dog's fur and then we had to rewash it. Or they wouldn't know how to brush the dog properly. And it wasn't until I saw those other employees that came that I realized, huh, I do have a little bit of skill here. Like, I... You know, I've been doing this, and it's become such a, a part of who I am. It didn't seem like anything to me, but to someone who's just coming in doesn't have that background, it was a skill. I think the same thing is true in the body of Christ. You know, some of us are wired in, in such a way that we just do, you know, do, you know, we exercise our gifts. We don't even realize we're exercising our gifts. You know, some people are just like super encouraging, you know, and you walk away from them, and you feel like you're on the top of the world. You know, and then they feel like, I, I don't have any gifts. And they'll be like, oh, that, I, I, was just, I was just talking. It's not a big deal. Like I was, you know, it doesn't seem like a big deal because it's just a part of who you are. You know, or someone who's really generous. You know, they love to give to others. And, you know, they just feel like, oh, I mean, I, God's given it to me. It's not really a big deal. It's not like I do this enormous thing. I just, you know, I just give. You know, same thing with people who have hospitality. You know, some people have the gift of service. You know, they're willing to help with anything. Just real, uh, have a servant's heart, just real loyal people. You know, and maybe they feel like, well, I mean, anyone could do what I do. It's not a big deal. It, does, it doesn't matter. It's not like it's a spiritual gift. But I think sometimes, you know, 
our gifts are so ingrained in who we are, we don't recognize that they're there. You know, and, and sometimes it's, I think that we need someone else to kind of show us what our gifts are. You know, sometimes somebody else, person sitting next to you, could maybe see your gifts better than you can if it becomes so a part of who you are. But God gives us each different gifts. And again, these gifts are gifts. They're not abilities. They're not talents. They're not something we earn. They're gifts that are given graciously by God, freely by God. We don't get the credit for these gifts. Uh, sometimes, I don't know if you've ever done like a spiritual, uh, spiritual ta- uh, gifts test. And oftentimes, you know, it, people will fill out these tests and it's like, all right, I scored high in this area. Like, I'm, I'm really good at this. Not so good at this, but I'm, I've scored high in, in the good ones. And it's almost like we treat it like a spiritual talent, spiritual ability rather than a spiritual gift. We don't get to take any credit. Told this story before, but uh, I think it bears repeating. One of the gifts I believe God has given me is teaching. And one of the first sermons I ever did was on a missions trip in Costa Rica. And uh, by nature, I'm very quiet and reserved. Uh, If I'm at a party, I'm going to be at the corner, not in the life of the party. And that might surprise you since I talk in front of people every week. But I went on this missions trip, and I hardly said anything to anyone. Really, really quiet. And then I decide to talk in front of people. I I volunteer to give the sermon. And uh, so I get up there. It was kind of I was going to practice before. I was going to preach at the church, but I practiced in front of our missions team group before, uh, before the church service. And I get up there, and I think everyone was expecting that I'd just be kind of bumbling along, talking in a quiet voice or whatnot. And I got up there, and they were amazed. And they were amazed not because it was the best sermon in the world. It was far from it. But they were amazed because it was clear, this is a gift from God. Like, this is not you. Clearly, I've talked to you, and this is not from you. This is a gift from God. You know, God gives us gifts we can't take the credit for. It wasn't because I, you know, had practiced a hundred million times. It wasn't because I took, you know, speaking classes. It's a gift of God. God gives each of us gifts and gives them graciously. I was amazed I was reading about J.R.R. Tolkien, author of The Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit. And he was a strong believer, and he believed that God had actually given him the, the ability to write to kind of point out the difference between good and evil. And uh, he describes how he started the, the, the series, The Hobbit, which would eventually become The Lord of the Rings. And uh, he describes it this way. He's working as a university professor. He says, I was doing the dull work of correcting exam papers when I came upon a blank page someone had turned in, a boon to all exam makers. I turned it over and wrote on the back, in a hole in the ground there lived a hobbit. That sentence would become the first line for the hobbit. He said, I'd never even heard of a hobbit or used the word before. Later on, he would also say, I, I, have, also, I have long ceased to invent my stories. I wait till I seem to know what really happened or till it writes itself. In a personal letter, he described his writing process this way. The other power, God, then took over. The writer of the story, by which I do not mean myself, that one ever-present person who is never present. Spiritual gifts, they're not about us. 
There's something that God gives us as a gracious gift. We can't take any of the credit for it. So that's the second thing that Paul says, that the gifts are not earned, they're given to us. The third thing he tells us is every gift is important. He says, for the body does not consist of one one member, but of many. In the body of Christ, there's two different types of people often. There's some people who feel like they don't have anything to contribute. They feel like what they do isn't important. And Paul, again, using the image of the body, responds this way. He says in verse 15, if the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If you're a believer in Christ, if you're a member of the body of Christ, you are important. What you do is indispensable and valuable. And just because we are different doesn't mean that what we do isn't important. Max Dupree once said this, a whale is as unique as a cactus, but don't ask a whale to survive Death Valley. He says we all have special gifts. So if you're a believer in Christ, what you do is important. Your spiritual gift matters, and we need all of us working together in the body of Christ. Uh, But some other people might have the tendency to think to themselves, and we talked about this a few weeks ago, we have this bent towards individualism, and maybe we feel like, I don't need other people in the body of Christ. I can just serve the Lord by myself. I mean, I I don't need the church. I don't need the person sitting next to me. I can go out and serve my neighbor by myself. I could just kind of do, you know, have my relationship with God and serve him. I don't need the people around me. And yet Paul argues that each body, each part of the body is indispensable. He talks about the parts of the body that are hidden, uh, parts that are unpresentable. And in talking about this, he's probably referring to the procreative organs, which though are hidden and unpresentable, are nevertheless important for uh, reproduction and other bodily functions. And so Paul says, parts of the body that seem like they're insignificant are really actually important. The parts of the body that seem like they're hidden, they're important. And so Paul reminds those who would say, I I can just do it by myself. He reminds us that we all need each other. Even the parts that seem like they're not important are important for the body of Christ to move effectively. So I'm not a big NASCAR fan, uh, but I found this very fascinating. In 1950, uh, there would be a four-person pit crew uh, for the pit stops. And that would be including the driver. So the driver would have to get out of his car, and he'd have to help change the tires and fill up the gas tank. And so they were able to change two tires and fill up the gas tank in just over 60 seconds, which is incredible. I'd like to be able to change some tires at all. <laughs> but sixty over 60 seconds, that's pretty impressive. But today... It's a lot different. Today, uh, there's 11 people that can be involved in the pit crew, not including the driver. The driver, I guess, just stays uh, in his seat. Six people are allowed to touch the car, and there's five people that are kind of behind the scenes assisting them. And today, with those those crews, they're able to uh, change all four tires, fill up the gas tank in under eight seconds. Apparently, Formula One pit crews are even bigger and even faster. Uh, Formula One crews sometimes involve over 20 people that each have an individual role to play in changing the tires, doing the pit stops. And if they're all working effectively, if they're all working together, they're able to change all four tires and top off the gas tank in under three seconds. It's just incredible what they can do. But each and every one of them is important. 
person behind the scenes, the person grabbing the tires, each and every one of them are important. They all have to work together if they're going to be effective. And if one person falters, it's going to cost the team time. And the same thing is true with the church. The church needs everyone working together. Each part is important. So each part is important, but then Paul goes on to say that spiritual gifts are not equal. Now this might be surprising to us because of all he's said about equality and diversity and about how the body of Christ needs to work together. Everyone is important. Every gift is important. So that might be a little bit surprising to us. But we're going back to that question of how we can be equal and unified and diverse at the same time. So Paul uh, indicates that there is diversity and there is kind of a hierarchy of gifts. And he concludes by saying, earnestly desire the higher gifts. Now what's interesting was what we know about the Corinthians is they were very interested in speaking in tongues. And uh, speaking in tongues, speaking in different languages. And what's interesting is Paul gives a list. Look at the list that he gives us. And he gives those presumably in the order of importance. He says apostles, prophets, teachers, miracles, healing, helping, administration, various kinds of tongues. The thing that they took their pride in was the thing that Paul says is kind of at the lower end of the spiritual gifts. And then he, in chapter 14, he's going to explain why it's at the lower end of the spiritual gifts. He says if a person comes into the church and is speaking in tongues, speaking in a foreign language, what he or she is doing is maybe honoring to God, but it's not encouraging to the body of Christ. If I came and preached this message in Swahili, it could be a great message and it could be honoring to God, but you're probably not going to get much out of the message unless you know Swahili. And so in Paul's mind, the hierarchy of gifts, the gifts that are most important are the gifts that build up the body of Christ the most. And so he says that we should pursue the higher gifts. Now, there's two images you can think about when we think about pursuing the higher gifts. First, I think what he's not referring to. You think about a football team. And on the football team, oftentimes it's a wide receiver. You'll have one person who's kind of, you know, wants all the spotlight. And he doesn't really care, really, if you win the game or not. It's like, just give me the ball. And what he's concerned about is like his stats, how many catches he gets, how many touchdowns he, he gets. He's just concerned about getting the ball. That's not what Paul is talking about here. He's not saying, oh yeah, try to seek the higher gifts so that you will glorify yourself, bring attention to yourself. That's not what he's talking about at all. I think it, rather he's talking about the person maybe on a football team that maybe he's on special teams. It's like... I just want to help the team win. Whatever I can do to help the team win, whether it's tackling someone, whether it's catching the ball, whether it's playing defense, I'll do anything. All I want to do is help the team win. And so I think that's what Paul's heart here is. He says, pursue the higher gifts. Seek to honor the Lord the best way you can. Seek to serve his body in the most effective way that you can. That's the fourth thing Paul tells us, spiritual gifts are not equal. The fifth thing, final thing he tells us is the body of Christ is interdependent. Verse 26 says, if one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. 
See, when the parts of the body are functioning effectively, they do not war against one another. The hand does not despise the eye. The nose does not despise the brain. The parts of the body do not despise one another because the parts of the body are dependent upon one another. For, in order for the body to function effectively, each member is important, and each member needs to be uh, working towards that goal of sustaining life. And the same thing is true for the body of Christ. We're one unit. Your success is my success. My success is your success. Your failure is my failure. My failure is your failure. If I'm struggling, it means you're struggling. If you're struggling, it means I'm struggling. We're all in this together. We're all one body, and so there's no room for warring. There's no room for comparison of, oh, this person has that gift, and this person has that gift, and this person is better because he has this gift. No, we're all working together towards this common goal of honoring Christ, bringing glory to him, and reaching those around us with the gospel. And so we're all on the same team. We're all in this together. So to sum it up, five things Paul tells us about spiritual gifts and about this hierarchy. Uh, Man's hierarchy is not the same thing as God's hierarchy. Spiritual gifts are not earned. They're given. Every gift is important. Spiritual gifts are not equal. And finally, the body of Christ is interdependent. And so let's circle back to this question. How can the body of Christ exhibit unity and equality even in the midst of diversity? And I think we see this answer that, he, that, that comes from this passage. And the answer is this. We can be united and diverse at the same time by recognizing that we each have been di- given different gifts, but we're all in the same team. We each have been given different gifts gifts that God has given us according to his wisdom and his plan. But we're all on the same team. We're all in this together. We're all working towards a common goal. There's a a movie called Boys in the Boat. It's a story of the 1936 University of Washington crew team. And what's interesting about this crew team is they were kind of an obscure group. Uh, When you think about crew, you think about kind of, you know, usually it's the kind of prep schools that are involved in crew. And so, I, you know, kind of the Ivy League schools, Harvard, Yale, those schools are the teams that have good crew teams, not the University of Washington. And so they put the, this team together, and it was made up of people, kids that worked on the farms, loggers, just common, ordinary people, and they brought them together for this crew team, and they went on to win the Berlin Olympics the gold medal in 1936. And they blew away the other teams from New England that were kind of the cream of the crop in terms of crew teams at that time. So how did they do that? How did they win that gold medal? Author author Daniel James Brown explained it in one word, teamwork. He explained how a crew team works best. He said the greatest paradox of the sport has to do with the psychological makeup of the people who pull the oars. Great oarsmen and oarswomen are are necessarily made of conflicting stuff, of oil and water, fire and earth. On the one hand, they must possess enormous self-confidence, strong egos, and titanic willpower. Nobody who does not believe deeply in himself or herself, in his or her ability to endure hardship and to prevail over adversity, is likely even to attempt something as audacious as competitive rowing at the highest levels. 
The sport offers so many opportunities for suffering and so few opportunities for glory that only the most tenacious, self-reliant, and self-motivated are likely to succeed at it. And yet at the same time, and this is the key, no other sport demands and rewards the complete abandonment of the self the way that rowing does. Great crews may have men or women of exceptional talent or strength. They may have outstanding coxswains or stroke oars or bowmen, but they have no stars. The team effort, the perfect synchronized flow of muscle, oars, boat, and water, the single whole unified and beautiful symphony that a crew in motion becomes is all that matters. Not the individual, not the self. I think that's what our church should look like. A church that has different gifts. We all have something to bring to the table. The church that's focused on the things of God, focused on the one goal of honoring God, reaching the lost. And so we can be unified and diverse at the same time by recognizing that we've been given different, unique gifts, but that we're all on the same team. We're all working towards the common goal. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your grace. We thank you that though you don't need us, you choose to use us for your glory, and you've given each and every one of us different gifts that we can use to serve your body, to bring glory to you, to serve our neighbor, to reach the lost around us. We thank you for those gifts that you give to us graciously, Lord. Help us to recognize those gifts. Help us to use those gifts. Help us to recognize that we all need each other. Each and every one of us, no matter what part we play, we're all important. We all matter in your eyes. And you've placed each and every one of us in a place of influence so that your body could function most effectively. Lord, help us to be unified. Help us to move with one accord, focusing on the things that matter, your kingdom and your glory. In Christ's name I pray, amen.